You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is a staff writer from the Los Angeles Times, Mr. Daniel Miller. Daniel, hey. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So my first question is, I want you to define what is a super complication? So a super complication is an enormously complicated watch. Typically, you see them in pocket watches. And I'm not sure if there is a hard and fast rule about the number of complications but the, the timepieces that I've seen described that way easily have upwards of a dozen um, complications. And oftentimes they are functions that require, you know, elite watchmaking skill, whether it is a perpetual calendar, a split second chronograph, or a, a minute repeating uh, watch. Uh, these are watches that, you know, I think, you know, if you were to, to, to describe them to a layperson, it's like an analog computer. And, uh, you know, please let me know if there is a hard and fast rule about that number of complications. <laughs> but but it's, it's something that, you know, really is up there well past a dozen. I, I brought up the term because I think that it's sort of at the core of this entire story. Daniel Miller wrote a story called J.P. Morgan's Million Dollar Pocket Watch Vanished. The hunt for it became an obsession. This is a great article in the Times uh, that came out on December 9th. 2021. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the meat of this story. But the context here is that throughout history, ever since wristwatches or pocket watches were a thing, you had these important figures in history drawn to the idea of going to a watchmaker and then commissioning them to make something crazy. Something crazy in a, in a complicated sense, but not actually crazy in an innovative sense, in the sense it wasn't actually solving any problems. And so you had throughout history a couple of moments where these towering figures in the world, uh, they had to be very wealthy, sought out the services of a mat- master watchmaker to produce a super complication, often for themselves. Dan, would you agree that that's, that's more or less part of the larger context? I think that's fair to say these were, um, th- these were time pieces that really uh, were only available to uh, the extremely wealthy uh, in the United States during the Gilded Age, they were popular among titans of industry. Um, you know, uh, this was an era when, uh, you know, time was, was power and being able to harness time and, 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 its, and its many variations, whether it's the phases of the moon or the sunrise and sunset, uh, that was something that not everybody had at their fingertips. And I think that it was captivating for, for the people who could afford it and, and, uh, and they went for it when they wanted it. I want to sort of give it a little bit of context because people, you know, sometimes need more modern analogs to understand how much it would have cost or why they would have bought it. And I liken some of these items to someone very wealthy, um, maybe making a yacht. This wouldn't have cost quite as much as a yacht, but it wouldn't have been that much cheaper. Uh, A summer home, probably about the same as that cost. It's sort of like a very nerdy way of commissioning art because it's, it's functional but it's actually more emotional in the purpose that it serves. Again, I'm just trying to talk a little bit more about who buys this and why and, and maybe what else you could do with that same money. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, adjusted for inflation, the prices of some of these super complicated pocket watches, 
that are well known from the early 20th century, uh, that the numbers would be staggering. And uh, yeah, perhaps it is akin to, um, uh, you know, commissioning a, a sculpture for uh, the sculpture garden at your uh, estate. Um, I agree with you. It's not quite on the level of, of, of ordering up a custom yacht. But uh, this was something that, um, you know, it, it was not necessarily uh, a requirement for daily living, let's say. You could find a watch to tell the time um, for, uh, for, for not too much money. So this was uh, probably for, for a connoisseur, for an aficionado, somebody for whom, uh, you know, horology was a passion and they had the means of, of kind of pushing uh, the limits of, of technology in their day. So let's talk about the particular timepiece at issue here. Tell us about who commissioned it, around when, um, how the watch was labeled. I mean, just sort of give people a little impression of what is the object that we're talking about? Sure. So we are talking about a double-sided pocket watch that was made by J. Player & Son of Coventry, England, around 1905. And according to people familiar with the timepiece over the decades, it was ordered by J.P. Morgan, the banking tycoon. And um, this watch uh, cost about 5,000 pounds, excuse me, uh, $5,000 at the time. And it took four years to make. And by one expert's count, this pocket watch had 18 complications. It's a little bit hard to discern the exact figure because uh, records are pretty spotty. But, but like I said, one expert pegged it at 18 uh, complications. Now, this watch could do things like chart the sunrise and sunset, the phases of the moon, the path of constellations, the signs of the zodiac, and it could track equinoxes, it could track solstices, and the declination of the sun. Um, it's a solid gold watch. It weighed about 1.75 pounds. Um, I mean, to me, this, this really was a mechanical masterpiece. So some of what we know about this watch uh, comes, in fact, uh, from an essay written by J. Player and Son that appeared in, the, in a 1909 edition of the Horological Journal, uh, which is effectively a trade magazine. And in this article, uh, J. J. Player and Son lays out some of the complications that I mentioned, and they uh, also say that the watch was made for, quote, uh, to the order uh, of an American gentleman who is an enthusiast in complicated horological productions. And the essay does not name the person who commissioned the watch, but that would certainly describe someone like J.P. Morgan, who was an inveterate collector and uh, was known, of course, for his massive uh, watch and clock collection. We, as you know, enthusiasts, you and I are both you know, really into watches. We can appreciate this from a lot of angles, especially I'm so glad that this works. But at the time, I think it's very clear that these people that were um, very wealthy and very powerful they had in their culture, and it's very much today the same thing, the need to sort of compete with one another, meaning industrialists, the mega wealthy, celebrities, whoever. There's this sort of inherent sense of competing amongst people even like them. They want to show off to one another, impress one another. I think one of the sort of the, the non-spoken parts of these stories is that this was really an object designed to impress and maybe even intimidate friends and colleagues. That would have been the power of this object. Yes, there would have been a real personal pleasure behind it, but Mr. Morgan and the other people that bought, you know, the, the few people out there that, that ordered things like this wanted to parade these around to, you know, strike envy in the hearts of their friends. Would you agree, disagree? 
I think that's fair to say. And, um, you know, I think that perhaps that uh, competition uh, among collectors of super complicated pocket watches came to a head a few decades later with the creation of the Grave Super Complication, uh, which uh, was completed in the early 1930s, had 24 complications, and at the time became the most complicated pocket watch in the world. Uh, there's a wonderful book about uh, that watch's creation called A Grand Complication, written by my now colleague at the LA Times, Stacy Perman. And Stacy goes into the, uh, I guess you could call it, uh, arms race between these two industrials, industrialists competing to have the most complicated pocket watch in the world. Uh, look, people don't become multimillionaires and billionaires uh, without sort of uh, having a healthy ego, let's say. And uh, as with today, these titans of industry back in the early 20th century, you know, it could often devolve into a pissing contest, let's be honest. Sure. Let's go back a little bit further in history to um, the Berguet. Uh, I think it's the the reference 160, which was the um, Marie Antoinette. And this is, for me, the first, you know, super complication watch um, to really sort of start this trend. It was the most complicated pocket watch in the world for about 100 years. It was commissioned by a suitor of Marie Antoinette, essentially for her as a gift. Uh, she died long before it was completed. It took about 40 years um, to finish it. Uh, a relative Breguet actually ended up having to finish it. And it was done, I think, in the 1820s or something like that. That's when it was it was finished. And it has its own very interesting, colorful history um, where it was lost for a number of years. But that was really the first one. And it sort of set off um, an interesting trend, you know, because there's nothing inherent in society that says, you know what I'm going to do with all my money? Make a very complicated, very small time, you know, keeping device that um, I can keep in my pocket, but it's still kind of too impractical to really take around anywhere. Like you had to have seen someone else in culture do this for, for this to spark the idea that, oh, I'd like to get one of these two one day. You know, I'm just trying to understand the psychology of people like Mr. Morgan when it sort of dawned upon them that they should do this. Because oftentimes people do this quite late in life, right? This isn't something that people do when they're like in their 30s and they just made their first few millions, right? Sure. I think that this is something that, uh, you know, is for the kind of the, the, the real aficionado and, and somebody for whom horology is not just some passing interest, because as you say, you know, there's perhaps more obvious ways to spend your money, right? And uh, I, I do think, though, that, you know, it might be hard for, for us to understand the mindset a little bit because we ha all have iPhones um, and Apple Watches and other devices that are fingertips that sort of open up a universe of information to us with like the swipe of a finger. Whereas just the very notion of being able to tell the sunrise and sunset along with the time and have the time chimed out for you was sort of... Uh, miraculous. And that alone could have just been a driving reason for anybody with the interest and the means to, to pursue a watch of this complication. So I'm thinking about a facet of culture that is sort of now more or less completely gone, that I think goes to what you're talking about, and the sort of appreciation and sort of part of the psychology. You know, growing up, it was a common thing where you had to ask a stranger for the time. If you didn't know the time, you had to ask them for the time, and they would ostensibly have to, you know, look at their watch. And so I believe that for many, many decades, there was this thing in culture that people would frequently go to you and ask for the time, 
And there was sort of some type of a gesture of, you know, revealing your watch or taking out a pocket watch and looking at it and telling them. And the more impressive your watch was, then you could have sort of a social element to telling people the time. So someone like J.P. Morgan was just sort of waiting for someone to say, do you know what time it is? And he says, not only do I know what time it is, but I know this and I know this. And did you know that the sunset is this time? And I think that, again, I'm just sort of trying to reconstruct a little bit about how they would use these ostensibly toys. I mean, you had people near near the end of their lives, probably bought everything, enjoyed everything, fancied the idea of waiting, as you said, four years for something to be completed upon delivery is delicate. Um, this was sort of the ultimate response to do you know what time it is? <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I have to wonder, though, you know, how often was J.P. Morgan walking down the street in Manhattan and, and somebody might be able to even get to him to ask him for the time, you know. Uh, at the country also, club? <laughs> there you go. At the country club or, or on a yacht, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that, well, I do think you make an interesting point about the, the social nature of, of, of uh, watch ownership back then that, you know, Really, we all experienced up until maybe a decade or, or so ago with the you know new ubiquity of the smartwatch. Um, you know, it, you're right. It's been a long time since I've asked somebody for the time, but I sure recall doing it all the time. No, no pun intended. Um, and um, <laughs> I, I think that you know, I, I do, I do wonder what you make of this. Somebody recently asked me, "Do you think that the owner of this watch actually wore it?" Because as we said, it weighs. 1.75 pounds. Can you imagine sort of uh, jamming that into your into your uh, coat or into your vest? I'm not sure I could pull that off. I don't know about you. It's not very practical. And I will say that I'm amongst the fortunate few in the world that have handled some of these watches and I can see sort of how big they are. And, you know, a lot of these are about as thick as a novel, right? <laughs> so not only are they very heavy, but they're it would kind of be like carrying a softball or a baseball in your pocket. It wouldn't really make an enormous amount of sense, um, but it's sort of great to have in some type of display on a desk, in a, you know, in a foyer, um, maybe in your bedroom. Um, th that it was portable meant a lot, right? Because these people were traveling a lot. And they couldn't have these complicated clocks at all their estates and all their offices. So being able to travel with this was kind of cool, but I have no idea how it was physically taken. If they took it, someone carried it with, for them. I mean, these were delicate. And even though they had complicated systems to try to stay accurate with movement, movement was really kind of the enemy. So they'd have to be regulated a lot. I'm not really sure how practical they were. Again, I'm just sort of thinking based upon what I know, having handled these things and also knowing what a utility pocket watch was like, the ones that would be in your pocket that you would use all the time, a very different type of item, much smaller, much more durable um, than something like this. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this watch featured a tourbillon. So there was, of course, an effort to uh, achieve the most accurate timekeeping, uh, you know, knowing that the watch would be held, carried, transported in different positions. Uh, and yet it, it was highly impractical. You know, I, I, I cannot imagine this thing being sort of dangled by a hook in a carriage, like some of those uh, carriage clocks you see from this era <laughs> uh, or a little bit earlier. No, this was this was uh, a prized possession, uh, you know, uh, probably displayed um, only under cer certain circumstances. But, you know, it's really, you know, uh, to kind of use a, a zeitgeisty phrase, it's like the ultimate flex, right? 
Um, I mean, if you have the opportunity to showcase this to to a rival, to to an associate, I mean, this is sort of the mic drop pocket. So, so, so I think the implication is that Mr. Morgan and his colleagues were not humble people, but they were also not above what we might say is like high school politics of trying to show off and flex to their peers, even though it didn't really do anything. Yeah, I mean, look, I, it, I, I probably wouldn't be smart to speculate about the thinking of uh, the world's most famous banker, but um, I, I would have to guess that anybody who owned this watch uh, had an appreciation uh, uh, for its, its unbelievable um, uh, construction and its many functions and would have taken an opportunity to show them off. Okay, so let's go and talk about what happened to this watch after he died. You mentioned in the article that he died just a couple years after it was done, so he didn't really get to enjoy it that long. What, what then was the subsequent life of this pocket watch? Sure. So this is really the meat of the story because um, uh, I, I'm not sure um, uh, I, I've really mentioned this yet, but the, the watch was effectively um, missing. It, it had disappeared from sort of the public view in the mid-1970s. And uh, it, with an effort to kind of find out what happened to it, I began to retrace uh, its, its ownership history. The thinking was, you know, if I could really get into the weeds and understand each collector who owned it and what they did with it, that I might figure out what happened to it um, after the 1970s. And so what we know is, is that um, it really traded hand multiple times. Uh, traded hands multiple times over the years. Um, we know that by the 1940s, uh, it, it came to be owned by uh, the late Benjamin Mellenhoff. Uh, he was a, a former head watchmaker at Tiffany & Company in New York City, and we know that he owned it as of 1947. Uh, we know that because it was written about in um, a magazine article at the time and photographed. Then we sort of lose track of the watch in, in sort of public history, but it crops up again um, in 1974 when an antiquarian sort of watch dealer, uh, Fabergé egg dealer named Jan Scala in Manhattan writes about the watch in a letter to the editor in uh, a trade journal in 1974. And this is where we see the claim for the first time that this watch was owned by J.P. Morgan. And Jan Scala boasts of the watch's many features and its J.P. Morgan provenance. And then that's the last that the watch was written up publicly. And, and, you know, that sort of story of Jan Scala's ownership, he's this enigmatic figure, not much was known about him publicly, is what really inspired me to, to, to dig into this tale. And so how did you get started? Because this is, this is a lot of sort of esoteric research. You have to go back, find people that may not really be exist or hard to find. Like, what's it like being a bit of a private detective in the internet era? Well, it was, first of all, such a thrill to write this story. It's extremely rare that I get to write about watches at the Los Angeles Times. I'm, I'm a reporter there covering business. And um, uh, I don't make a habit of it, but this story seemed to kind of jump off the page. And so right. uh, to the, the reporting process uh, began um, in 2020. And, and credit is really due to, um, to two other people, really. Uh, I first read about the watch on a website called SJX Watches which had detailed some of the early history of the watch. And that's where I first learned of it. Um, yeah, SJX loves stuff like that. He's so into that stuff. And it's a great tale uh, told on their website. I, I recommend you, you check it out to see what they uncovered. And that's what really whetted my appetite and made me want to push the story 
further to see if I could solve this mystery. Um, in my early research, which was really just going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole on the internet, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, so I had time to kill, um, I, I came across a young man who was posting on uh, watch message boards. Um, and his name was Carl Player. And of course, I saw the last name Player, and it clicked. Oh, wow. Um, you know, he was a descendant of J.W. Player, the watchmaker in Coventry who, who made this masterpiece. And Carl had been posting for several years on different message boards, seeking information, not just about this watch, but about his family's watchmaking history. And uh, it was clear that he too was searching for more information. And uh, I was struck by sort of his own pursuit and wanted to learn more about his interests. And so I reached out to him and we connected in spring 2020. And, you know, Carl explained to me um, that, you know, he, he had a natural curiosity for the whereabouts of this watch. He just wanted to know. But he also thought that finding it could prove to the world what his family had accomplished. His family had not been in the watchmaking business for decades. And, you know, this might remind people of Jay Player and Son and all that they had accomplished. And it's I, true. Uh, outside of the story, that is not a name associated with any common topic in, in, in watch collector discussion. Absolutely. Um, Jay Player and Son is not a well-known watchmaker. Um, you know, occasionally you might see one of their more simple timepieces crop up on eBay for sale, but um, they are not widely known. And that's partly because they shut down um, in 1910, just a year after this, this super complicated pocket. Wow, watch. it bankrupted them. <laughs> right, and, you know, there's something, and, and we say this in the story, it's kind of darkly poetic that this watch had a role in the company's demise. And, and Carl Player mentioned that to me, that it was his understanding, you know, he heard family stories and things like that, uh, that, you know, uh, sort of all the energy, all the resources that were put into making this pocket watch uh, took a toll on, on the company. And it closed in 1910. And, and J.W. Player, this master watchmaker, went on to have a long career uh, in the industry and wrote at least one uh, very well-regarded book about watchmaking. But, um, you know, this was the end of the family firm. And, and Carl Player was desperate to learn more about, his, about this company and this, this super complicated pocket watch. And uh, I, I just loved the idea that you had a descendant of its maker searching for it as well. And that really kind of uh, was all I needed to dive into the research. What are some interesting facts you learned, things that may not even be relevant, but just stuff you learned along the, the, the sort of journey of trying to figure out as much as you can about this? Because, you know, as a, a curious mind, I think sometimes the, the hunt is actually more interesting sometimes than, than actually achieving where you're trying to go. And we sort of relish in, in that part of the experience. So I'm just, I'm so fascinated to know, like, what did you learn that, that excited you? Sure. Well, it's funny. Often reporters, you know, will tell you that they love the research phase of a story like this, but getting down to actually writing it is, is brutal. Right. Um, and so to, I, I, I can somewhat relate to that here because I was able just to sort of pursue every thread that, that I thought could lead us to the watch. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things I think is fascinating and some people, some of your listeners may know this, but, you know, JP Morgan was, was uh, a massive collector of, of pocket watches. And uh, one thing that I just loved is that um, he had many watches made by a company called uh, 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 Fraudsham in England. 
that he would then gift. And so there are quite a few fraudulent yeah, they're back. They're watches back. Uh, that, that, that are that are that are from JP Morgan that, that are out there. Certainly not as rare as this, but but there are they are there are several in collectors' hands. And uh, and I just love that idea that that you know if if it was a big promotion or perhaps on a wedding day, you know, and you were pals with JP or an associate of JP, that you, you could expect to have a a, a fraudulent in the box you're unwrapping from him. Yeah. That's that's so important to mention uh, because in addition to people buying watches for themselves, if you were someone like J.P. Morgan or, or you know many steps away from that, you had to buy gifts for people on a regular basis. And as you know, as an adult, choosing a, a nice gift for someone it's kind of a pain. So if you had like a couple of preferred types of gifts that you can make on a bespoke base, basis for special people, people would just tend to stick with it. You know, like you'd be like, oh, I got this great watchmaker. Watches make such good gifts. Uh, everyone's happy. I'll just keep ha- commissioning them to do stuff for important people in my life. Like this was an important service um, in the in the lives of these industrialists, these important people. But gifting was a very real thing they had to do on a regular basis. Absolutely, and I think that we can't understate sort of the value of people like J.P. Morgan and others, including Henry Graves Jr. as patrons of these of these um, eminent uh, uh, watch firms. I think it's known at this point, you know, that really the Graves Commission of the Super Complication uh, was a lifeline for Patek Philippe during a very difficult um, interwar period for that company. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, I don't want to get too high-minded and I can't speak for these, you know, long-dead robber barons, but, you know, that, that, that they really were perhaps patrons in, in the truest sense of the word, that they that they saw watchmaking as an art form that they wanted to keep alive during, you know, you know, uh, tough economic times for some of these companies. And, and that, that's really worth noting. Now, I know that there's a big market out there for, you know, very expensive, important historic watches from name brands and stuff like that, like the Rolexes and Patek Philippe's. Stuff like, you know, a player watch, while has a great story, isn't, isn't going to be sort of as well known. I guess my question is, is there a market for things like this? No doubt it's a very, very valuable item. But is it a super valuable item in this sort of like ability for it to be sold very, very hot and even on an on a, you know, unofficial market basis? Well, uh, I think I'd be foolish to sort of put an exact dollar figure on the value of this watch. Of course, um, of course. But, uh, you know, in speaking to some experts who are, you know, knowledgeable in the space, they, they, they thought that it could be worth millions of dollars. And I think it's... Oh, at least, you know, at least. And, 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 and it's, you know, the, 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 the value of the provenance um, and the value of the watch in terms of the sheer watchmaking with 18 complications. Um, while not the most complicated pocket watch in the world, um, it, it's certainly up there. Um, you know, I think we do need to note, however, that, you know, the, the provenance, um, there are questions about the provenance, let's say. This pocket watch does not appear in any records at the Morgan Library in New York. The first reference to Morgan's ownership of it came in 1974 when Jan Scala, one of its owners, said that J.P. Morgan had owned it. And let's be real, Jan Scala was a salesman. He's an antiquarian, and uh, he was in the business of selling things. And indeed, I was able to learn that he, in fact, sold this watch. So, um, you know, the provenance so he might is have, not... He might have embellished a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, I think all, that also has to be weighed against the fact that I spoke to several other people who said that they knew of J.P. Morgan's ownership of the watch. Carl Player told me that this was something that his grandfather had told him about 
before he died in 2019. Um, I spoke to Robert Looms, the chairman of the British Horological Institute and a watchmaker in England, who told me that uh, he learned of the Morgan provenance about 25 years ago. So there are others who have heard of it. But this is not the same as the Graves provenance with um, Patek Philippe, where there are uh, clear records indicating uh, the commissioning of the timepiece by Graves. I have a theory that may be a possibility. Assuming that Morgan was not the owner of it, maybe they made this watch. The intention was to sell it to someone like J.P. Morgan because it was priced for a customer like that. It was then sent to New York um, for the purposes of being sold. They, maybe everyone realized it would take a while. And maybe it never sold. And maybe the fact that Player had put so much effort into this singular item and it wasn't able to sell was ultimately what caused them to go under because they couldn't sell it, you know, uh, in time. Is that potentially something that could have happened? Hey, I like the idea. Uh, and I think I'd entertain any notions about what could have happened to it. Um, and I think that's what's so fun about this story is that there are many off ramps for, for discussion and for speculation. Uh, you know, we, we were pretty careful in our story to to sort of caveat it with those questions. But at the same time, there 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 are several people vouching for the Morgan provenance. Um, and uh, when you read the description of uh, but written by J. Player and Son back in 1909, uh, describing for whom it was made, though Morgan is not named, you know, he certainly fits the bill. Now, if it wasn't him... Who maybe could it have been? Are there competing potential owners if it was sold to somebody? Because it, you know, it came to America, like you said, maybe just to be sold. I mean, it makes sense that a watchmaker would try to sell it because um, this individual would be servicing the wa the watches of other people like this who could they could you know afford it. So they they would be ostensibly a, a good you know person to try to, to to sell something. But who who may have been a, a competing owner? You know, I'm not sure I could speculate on who might have owned it if not Morgan. And frankly, for the purposes of my story, I had the luxury of, of focusing on trying to figure out what happened to the watch. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure I would have necessarily had a story if we hadn't, quote unquote, solved it, right? And so uh, right. Some, of the, some of the kind of um, uh, alternate routes that, that I might have pursued uh, kind of had to sort of... Um, fall by the wayside in pursuit in pursuit of actually the watch itself. See, this is because I have a legal background, so I have to think of all plausible alternative theories, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high-quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch Store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Now, let's go back to sort of the hunt for its disappearance. Um, much of your, of your quest 
is to determine where the where the item is today. It sort of has you know some commentary about it. It's referenced here and there. But I think you were hoping to see the object for yourself, right? Well, I think that would be the ultimate goal. But um, but you know, to be honest, um, I, I wanted to know that the watch was still around more than anything, um, and that it wasn't lost. And I think that Carl Player. Um, that was his biggest concern, that the watch had been lost, that it was in some attic somewhere never to be found again, that it had been stolen and that a thief didn't really understand its true value. And he really despaired that it would never be, you know, seen again. And um, I think that really weighed on him. And so ultimately, my goal was to just know that it was safe. Uh, of course, you know, uh, holding it in my hands would would be, you know, fascinating and certainly satisfying, but, but I'm not sure that was my, my ultimate goal. We wanted to just know that it was still around, I think, for starters. So how close did you get to finding out where it actually is? Sort of, I think sort of the, the end point of the story is it's, you know, and I'll let you explain it. It's, yeah. it's, but it's still out there, you think? Yes, yes. We know it's still out there. And I will wrap this up. So, that, so spoilers are ahead. And of course, you know, uh, if you want to read a sort of more eloquent telling of this, uh, at latimes.com, you can find the full story. Um, but here's what we know happened to the watch. So up, when I began my reporting process, it was known that Jan Scala owned the watch in 1974 because he wrote about it in this trade journal, as I've mentioned. What follows is what was not known and what we discovered. So uh, I was able to learn from a source uh, that the watch was sold by Jan Scala to a very prominent Breguet collector named Sam Bloomfield. Sam Bloomfield was a fascinating guy who made his money in aviation in Wichita and moved to La Jolla down near San Diego in Southern California and became a prominent collector of Stradivarius violins, of, of Ferraris, and, and like I said, Brigade Pop. Just the best. Yes. Uh, a, real, a, a real sort of connoisseur, very wealthy. He could afford, afford the best, and he went out and got it. And um, uh, as my story says, he happened to visit Jan Scala's shop in the mid-1970s. And um, the watch was in the shop. It was just by chance that it was there and not in a safe uh, where his Scala's most valuable items were typically kept. And Bloomfield saw this watch and he coveted it and wanted it at all costs. And Scala told him that it was for sale for $250,000. Now, in the early to mid-1970s, that's just an exorbitant sum you know, adjusted for inflation, that's something like $1.3 million. Of course, with inflation on the rise, it could be even more than that today. Yeah, I'm um, thinking. And so this is an astronomical sum at the time, but uh, I, I was told that Bloomfield didn't, didn't hesitate and, and immediately buys the watch, and he brings it back to La Jolla. Um, uh, at that point, uh, an, an interesting figure enters the story. So uh, uh, one of the sources in the story is the founder of the rare timepieces dealer, Bobinet, and his name is Andrew Crisford. And uh, Crisford was in New York City in the mid-1970s and was visiting a watchmaker named Janos Weinberger, who was um, a master watchmaker who was perhaps one of the few watchmakers at the time who could even service a watch of this complication. And Crisford inquires about the watch and Weinberger tells him, you know, this is Jan Scala's watch, but it's being sold to Bloomfield. 
So now Christopher be- has become aware of this of this timepiece, and he soon strikes up a friendship uh, or an acquaintanceship with Bloomfield and visited, visits him in San Diego in the late 1970s, and they both bond over their love of Breguet watches. And over over several years, starting before um, Sam Bloomfield dies and concluding after he dies, uh, Bobinet acquires his collection of timepieces. And uh, this piece in particular was acquired by Bobinet in 1983 for an undisclosed sum. And then we then know that Bobinet turns around and sells the watch that same year to an unnamed buyer for an undisclosed sum. And as the story says, that unnamed buyer still owns the watch to this day. Okay, so it has a potential home. Now, I think that, you know, in the context of these very, very rare watches, they end up essentially in two places, in a public collection or private collection. Sort of that's how these types of objects are sort of segmented in the world today. There are a number of these important timepieces um, that have been produced, you know, since I guess the the 16th century, really, though it wasn't really till the 18th century where it started to get interesting. And these items, you know, in, in large parts are extremely valuable. And, you know, it's just as likely that a private collector who doesn't want people to know about it will get it than, you know, a museum. And those private collectors tend to have more money collectively than the museums. And so that's sort of how these things are are separated in the world. Once in a while, there's a true question of does it exist or not, where you just truly don't know, has it been lost? Has it been destroyed? Um, is it just never going to you know, be seen again? Sometimes it's taken apart and no one can fix it, and then they just end up hiding it. Um, these are very real questions, but you know, in your research, how many items like this are just lost and there's no evidence that they even exist anymore? Sure. Um, yeah, I think there's several infamous missing watches. Um, Two examples that come to mind uh, are uh, Buzz Aldrin's missing Speedmaster that was worn on the moon, uh, the, the first right. watch worn on the moon that, uh, if I understand it correctly, somehow was lost or stolen while being transported to the Smithsonian uh, several decades ago. And its whereabouts are, are not known. What a, cool, what a cool watch to have, huh? Exactly. I mean, and I think that, you know, I think you could easily argue that um, that that's perhaps the the most important watch of the 20th century. Um, we know that Omega has made the Speedmaster's sort of aura as NASA's watch of choice a key part of its its marketing and mystique in recent decades. Can you imagine if that watch were on display at an Omega museum, let's say, um, or right. indeed at the Smithsonian, which is where it was meant to go? So, so that watch comes to mind. There's a very famous Breguet that was made for a, a Neapolitan queen in uh, 1810, I believe, that is also missing. Uh, I understand... Um, uh, is that the original uh, Rain de Naples, as they called it? Yes, this is the this supposedly the first pot... Excuse me, the first wristwatch ever made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I didn't realize they didn't know where that was. Yeah, so th- that had been... Uh, again, um, I'm just uh, sort of recalling some of my research, but th- that had been serviced by Breguet over the years. So there were records of its existence and it is well documented, but eventually it did disappear and its whereabouts are not known. Um, You know, in terms of- Again, like you said, arguably the world's very first wrist-worn watch. Exactly. And so those two come to mind as as among the most fascinating, quote-unquote, missing watches that, you know, perhaps may never be seen again. 
I mean, there, there are other famous examples. You know, I think that there's a, there's a, a, a complicated paddock Philippe wristwatch that John Lennon has, was photographed wearing that um, has not been seen. I think whether he actually owned the watch or was be, or briefly wearing it, it's unclear, but it's an iconic photo of him wearing it. And nobody knows what happened to that watch. Um, so there are others, but I think, you know, the first watch ever worn on the moon, the first wristwatch ever made, those are up there on the list of missing watches that people would sure like to find. As someone who understands the historical importance as well as sort of collector's importance of these objects, what do you recommend? Where should these things be held? Should they be, you know, hoarded as very valuable items in private collections? Should they be on display even on loan if they're owned by a, a private collector? Where, you know, they have some value to the world. Where should people be discovering these objects? Yeah, I mean, look, I it, it's hard for me to to begrudge a collector with the means to acquire something like this and want to keep it for themselves. Um, and yet, I, I I think that you know what you're suggesting is, of course, how I feel as well that these pieces are uh, uh, things that should be um, seen by the public. That they have historical significance. They have artistic significance, much like. Um, a, a, a fine piece of artwork or sculpture or painting, and that they should be on display. And I and, and I believe, and you may know um, more about this than I do, that that in recent um, years that we've seen companies like Patek Philippe uh, and others acquire important timepieces in their history at auction, and to kind of claw back some of their history that's floating out there in 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 the public, and and then put it on display at a museum where the public can see it. Um, and uh, I, I think that's I think that's for the better. I think that you know just the the pleasure of a museum visit where you can see something like this on display, the, the academic research that could occur with some of these timepieces, you know, it, it it would be for the public good. You know, I I'm I'm thinking like Indiana Jones, who has this iconic you know line like it belongs in a museum, where this <laughs> sort of this militant notion that like people need to see this, they need to learn from it, whatever it is that they end up learning, this is a very telling object and it shouldn't be hidden away. Um, and what I, I think of is in a modern context, these types of objects are still made, they're still ordered. That's the sort of cool thing for me is that this isn't just some weird vestige of the past, even though it very much is, but it's something that firms today, Patek Philippe, Vacheron Constantin, you know, a bunch of private uh, you know, watchmakers here and there, they're still making the today equivalents of the super complications and these one-of-a-kind things. I mean, Vacheron, at the least, does this brilliant thing where they make this one-of-a-kind object for someone, costing them millions of dollars, and then they market it like it's for sale when it isn't. It's like, here's an ad campaign to tell you about something you can't buy that we made for one person at the expense of millions. Um, have you ever noticed that? I have, and I follow those those wonderful, complicated wristwatches and pocket watch with great interest because it's true artwork. Um, and I'm certainly not going to ever possess one myself, so I love seeing those high res photos um, on 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 the internet, and and I pour over them just like any other um, you know watch collector. Um, and and I think that's great that romance of sort of like the patron commissioning these pieces that really don't have a practical reason for existence, but but people still want that and these companies are still obliging. Did you ask yourself if Daniel Miller was able to have the means to order something like this? What would be your your flex watch? Like, you know, like you you could do this yourself. What would this look like? What would you want this watch to say about you and, and, and just to project to the world? That is, well, as a collector, who hasn't thought about that? And who, and you know, and, and I love that there's a lot more independent watchmakers 
um, who are um, sort of producing bespoke timepieces that, you know, uh, you know, maybe they don't cost an arm and leg, maybe just a leg, but, but, but they're somewhat attainable. So you can kind of daydream about it. So I'll tell you a complication that I just think is so romantic and that I think is something that I would love to own and certainly don't. I love the idea of a sunrise and sunset complication, which this J player uh, pocket watch had. Um, it, it has to be calibrated to, to sort of the, the place where you reside to, to, yeah. to, to, to function. And uh, I'm from Los Angeles, born and raised. Um, it's my hometown. It's my city. And I think a sunrise and sunset complication calibrated for Los Angeles would be such a cool thing to have on my wrist. Um, like I said, really this kind of romantic old world complication. They um, have that. You can get a crayon. <laughs> right. I could get a crayon. Part of uh, the name, you know, crayon with a K. Yeah. I, uh, I think those timepieces are gorgeous. They're really nice. Um, I think they're, they just they're, they do that exact thing you're talking about, and you know that just came out uh, in the last two three years. I, I do. I think they're beautiful. I think they're pushing six figures though, probably with quite a wait list. So oh, but you have an in. You're a watch guy. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there's a, is something that people might remember. Martin Braun made a, yes. a sunrise and sunset of course, uh, complication of called with I those think, two opposing hands. Right, right. I think it was called the EOS. Um, something like that. And. Um, and you see them pop up on eBay and Chrono24 and elsewhere. And I just played it, with one not even a month ago. Oh, did you really? In my hands. So, yeah, there's one in L.A. right here. Oh, well, I might have to hear about that from, from you offline. Uh, so so th- I've actually inquired, but oftentimes I'll ask an eBay seller, you know, who's got one listed for three grand or four grand or five grand, you know, wh- where is it calibrated for? And they'll tell me, oh, it's set up for Lisbon. Oh, it's set up for Tokyo. It's set up for Madrid. Um and I think only on one occasion I found one that was set up for Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, I posted on message boards about this Martin Braun watch. I've been told that the tooling to work on them is lost or no longer in functioning. And that Martin oh, so they Braun's, can't like they can't adjust it after the fact. Right, right. And then Martin Braun's company, I understand that he's still a working watchmaker, uh, but that, but that that company is no more, and so that the idea of getting one service is a little dicey. So I've never quite pulled you, the trigger. You can get him to do it. You can get him to do it. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, well, that's something to consider. So so yes, <laughs> it's a, it's a complication that exists. You don't you you know you don't have to commission an uh, an eighteen complication pocket watch to get it. And and I and I love that because it sort of feels personal connection to yeah, to, yeah. to where I live. That's a that's a great complication. I totally agree with you. It's actually very useful as well, um, and there's a lot can be done with that. So, where do you think this this market is going to go? Because if more of these pocket watches, these super complications, be them a pocket watch or wristwatch, are on display in some type of public display or museum format, it's going to make sure that there's a market that continues for them. Sort of selfishly, if you and I promote these more, we help a market for them, and then today's JP Morgans, if you will, are going are gonna to do them. Are you familiar with the version of this that Jeff Bezos is doing? Is this that clock that will sort of outlive us all? That will live The 10,000-year clock, yes. Yeah. Yes. Is this not a story that we need to go learn more about? I feel like we need to get Mr. Bezos's foundation to invite us out to see this thing that Disney Imagineers were designed to uh, make cool. And isn't it isn't it in some sort of hard to reach spot in the desert or something like that? Oh, it's in Texas. Oh, yeah, it's like in the middle of nowhere. Right. I love that idea. Um, you know, without w- w- without commenting on on Jeff Bezos and how he 
how he spends his money. Um, I, I think that that idea, uh, you know, on its own is fascinating. And but he's doing his own super complication. That's the point. It's happening right now today in, in crazy Jeff Bezos way. Exactly. And, and I think it's a fascinating idea, the notion of, of building something that, you know, will outlast us all. Um, and, you know, you can only sort of daydream and wonder about its discovery, you know, uh, hundreds, uh, hundreds of thousands of years from now by whatever is inhabiting our, our planet. But I want to know, it's I've almost as though to do a character study of these individuals, find out what their association with time and power is. They obviously feel that power allows you to harness time. That's why they're so obsessed with these objects and this, this thing. But, you know, very few of us have interviewed them on the specific topic. So I'm just really curious to see how this, why this psychology is so recurrent. Generation after generation, completely unconnected, crazy powerful people want to harness time. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I do. I do. And, you know, I'm sure there's like very sort of basic, you know, armchair psychology, you know, ways to look at it. You know, that these are people who, who never have enough time in the world and, and this allows them to exert an extra measure of control over it. But I don't really personally want to go down that road. But, but, I, but I will tell you this. I mean, I think if we go back centuries, right, time really was power. There was a clock in the town square, perhaps, and you maybe could hear bells and that's what you knew. And there was a time um, when really only the rich could afford a, a clock in their home, right? And it was increasingly democratized over, over the decades, right? Until it became commonplace. But, but there was a time, pre-20th century, where being able to know more than just what hour it was, being able to know the sunrise and sunset, the phases of the moon, et cetera, et cetera, was, was real power that no one else could harness. And I, I just have to think that would have been just endlessly alluring for people who could afford it. Okay, so where where do you take this next? You said that you very rarely get to write about watches because you're mostly a, a business uh, writer. Um, how, how can you incorporate your interest in watches more in your daily work? Well, um, I'm always on the hunt for a good yarn. Um, I, I, without revealing too much, I've received at least one one message from a reader about uh, uh, a very mysterious pocket watch whose uh, whereabouts are known, but whose provenance is not entirely sorted out. And that's an intriguing Ooh. tale. Um, and uh, look, I'm always up for good yarn, whether it's about watches or any other topic. Um, this could be like a niche thing for you. It could be like the, the watch provenance hunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually think that whether I'd write about it or not is besides the point, what I think is really interesting about this moment in in watchmaking is that um you know the typical sort of strongholds of of power really switzerland um you know has ceded some ground to other areas los angeles is a great example you know weiss watches got its start here in los angeles um jn shapiro makes these gorgeous dials here in los angeles and you yep, know it's yep. not just la there's you know uh, cities across the united states where there's fine watchmakers doing exquisite work. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's a trend that is well worth covering. And, you know, as collectors, it's also something that's well worth supporting. And so that's something that I, I'm certainly keeping my eye on. I think that's, that's really exciting to see. Do you think that there's a reason for more mainstream coverage of the watch industry? It's popular now, but it's sort of popular with, you know, nerds like us and kids that see it as status symbols, sort of the middle... Uh, the middle consumer still more or less isn't 
honed in on you know <laughs> collectible timepieces as being a thing. Do you think that there's something to be learned culturally um, for more people to be into this, or is it sort of destined to be kind of a, a, a hobby for you know the elite? Well, I think that you know the watch the the watch industry has you know compared to where it was post quartz crisis been on you know a wonderful run for the last couple decades and i think you know the reintroduction of mechanical timekeeping to sort of like the um average consumer is is wonderful to see and um i'm not sure that sort of at this level of geekery it's going to have mass appeal but i do think that big pop culture moments perhaps the biggest of them all is the sale of the paul newman daytona some years ago right for for an astronomical sum i think that moments like that have a way of drawing in, you know, sort of new segments of audience, right? And that dollar signs help, right? Dollar signs help. Big bold faced Hollywood names help. Um, you know, we saw the the the, the auctioning of a Marlon Brando um, Rolex, I believe, a couple of years ago. You know, not didn't quite have the pop culture um, uh, reverberations that the Paul Newman Daytona did, but it it did go to show you that, you know, big bold face names, icons of, of, of the silver screen do, do command a wider audience. And, you know, the auction houses are, are smart to cultivate those timepieces uh, for, for their splashy auctions in New York and Geneva and elsewhere. And I think that, you know, watchmakers and watch companies, you know, finding ways to make their products more accessible and to better explain sort of like, the beauty and magic of mechanical timekeeping could go a long way towards uh, sort of widening the, the the audience. And I think you see some of that. Um, I'm not sure that like, you know, um, every Swiss watch firm coming out with a smartwatch is going to do it. I think really sort of um, selling the romance of it, selling the, the sort of precision and the beauty of it. And yeah, it doesn't hurt to have a name like Paul Newman attached to your industry. That, that, that will see sort of the audience grow. Daniel, I totally agree with you. And I'll end by saying this as sort of a reminder to everyone why this is a pertinent topic. Throughout my sort of interest in watches, what I've learned is that many of today's most important, educated, powerful people are into watches, right? Celebrities, politicians, you know, captains of industry, the the ultra elite and wealthy. Um, not all of them, of course, but watches seem to be a hobby that many of them gravitate to. And that's very interesting that these people that have wide choice in their hobbies choose watches. And so it's power to maintain the interest of people that have a lot of choice, I think, is a very powerful social validation, if you will, of the appeal and the allure of the hobby and it's it's and to, to help leg, le, legitimize it for those people that might see it as frivolous. I don't think that's frivolous. I think that all adults uh, should be able to play with toys if we want to, but in a historically interesting and culturally um, you know, uh, varied way. And so that's why I think that having discussions about these very important people in history and today who are into watches helps explain to a wider public why this is such an intellectually uh, appealing um, hobby for, for so many different reasons. Um, thoughts? Yeah, no, I think that's very well said. And um, I can't tell you how gratifying it has been over the last week or two following the publication of my story to, to hear from readers, to see comments on, our, our, on the story on latimes.com expressing their fascination with watches, people telling me that they never considered a watch as a piece of uh, you know, art until now. Um, 
and and that's that's really gratifying to to introduce the the story of the J Player and Son super complication to to audiences that never really would have considered it before, and to tell like a really human tale of 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 Carl Player's quest to learn what happened to his family's masterpiece, um, and I think that that's eminently relatable. Uh, we all want to know about our history, and, and Carl got to learn a little bit a bit of a little bit of his and get something of a happy ending, and that's what made it so fulfilling. The story is J.P. Morgan's million-dollar pocket watch vanished. The hunt for it became an obsession. This is a story by Daniel Miller on latimes.com. Uh, we've just been speaking to him for this episode of Superlative. Daniel, this was an absolute pleasure. I look forward to hearing about your next story. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Ariel. It was a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Any other plugs that you should mention? You can read the story at latimes.com. You can also read it on Apple News and Apple News Plus. You can listen to the story. So if you're on your Peloton and want to hear um, it read to you, then you can hear it that way. Wonderful. Everyone, I recommend you do that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? 